from Australia, broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mitch Maroney Show. Here's your host, Mitch Maroney. Okay, welcome everybody. Today we've got a good friend of mine, Darren Newton. He heads up Wealth Management West, self-managed super fund specialist, and we're going to discuss all things super today. How are you, Darren? I'm good, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Not too bad at all. How's the super fund world going at the moment with COVID and any other changes that you maybe haven't? Well, superannuation tends to plot along. Self-managed super, I mean, this is where self-managed super becomes really effective because you have control over what is happening. So when stock markets move and things like that, you get to move with them rather than waiting for someone else to move. So for my fund, for example, when the stock market fell at the start of the shutdowns, I just restyled my portfolio so that I bought more of these stocks that are stock standard, everyday stocks that everybody would buy, but they're now at discount prices. So for my self-managed super fund, I haven't really been hit by this situation. Whereas if you're in an industry fund or a retail fund, you've got no control. So that's where self-managed super fund sort of comes into its own in these sort of circumstances. Definitely. And at least having that control and ability to choose your own destiny, I suppose, of having the self-managed super fund can, can definitely be beneficial. In your experience, what do most people use in their self-managed super fund? What investments and strategies and that side of things? Most people would go for either direct to the market, direct to listed shares, or they'll go direct to property, whether it be residential or commercial. Recently, I've seen a lot of precious metal. So opening a Perth Mint account and buying a lot of gold because you think the world is going to be topsy-turvy for a long while and you think gold will be pretty steady. So those at the moment tend to be the main things. You get flashes from your Bitcoins and these exotic investment types, all of which are available to self-managed super funds. That makes sense. And with the world that we're living in at the moment with COVID and all the rest, it does make sense. A lot of people are heading towards precious minerals and that side of things. I have seen, and I mean, you briefly just touched on it, but with the rise of cryptocurrency, how have you found that's affected people's super and I suppose their investment strategies with it from your side of things? Cryptocurrency is a high risk investment. And usually what I found is that those that go for it, they tend to be heavily into it, meaning they put all of their assets into cryptocurrency. And of course, inevitably, it fails because you're only in the one asset and that asset fluctuates in value quite heavily. If you're going to go into cryptocurrency, don't put everything into it. Balance it against with, with your precious metals or the, the share market or something so that you've got two pistons firing at the same time. And if one falls, theoretically, the other one should be rocking along. I've seen crypto done really well and make a lot of money, but I've seen crypto do really, really badly and lose everything. I think that's just good sound advice just in general as well to not put all your eggs in one basket. Obviously, with cryptos, some people have done extremely well out of it and some people have lost a lot. But just in general, putting all your money into one share, for example, is probably not the best financial 
decision, you know, spreading it across different investments, different industries, just diversifying the portfolio, I think is very important. Because if something does happen for whatever reason in one, hopefully the others will gain it. That's very true. The only other one that tends to come up is direct property. Because you get a lot of people setting up self-managed super funds because they want to buy a commercial property and then they want to use that as their place of business. There's a different rationale behind it there. But prices in property don't tend to fluctuate as much and they're serving another purpose. They're not just serving to build for your retirement. Mm. They're serving to provide you with a place of business as well. And obviously there are a lot of people that are more comfortable with residential. So it doesn't have the big swings that can happen. Even the commercial side of things, like you said, with getting a commercial premises, it can potentially be a quite a good strategy holding the wealth within the circle. So your commercial business pays rent to self-managed super fund for the location and it just kind of keeps it in the circle. In my experience, I found that's one of the most beneficial ways that people have used their self-managed super fund in that respect. Well, do you have many that do residential investments in it or more? We have quite a few. It was very popular, say, five years ago, not so much at the moment, but everything goes in cycles, so it'll come back again. Most people would see residential as a very sturdy investment, and particularly with the market being quite low, that's the time to jump into it. People will come back to residential and they'll be using their self-managed super funds to do it as well. Yeah, no, 100%. So people are getting back a bit more into the residential side of things. But I do think, yeah, commercial, if you've got the facilities there and the ability, it can definitely be a good strategy, like we were saying. With the commercial, we like to say that you get to be your own landlord and you're also paying rent towards your future self. Yes. Rather than paying the bank interest, you're paying rent towards your retirement. Yeah, so it's and it keeps it in the circle, which is really good, opposed to That's right. leasing it off of a third party and then that rent's just gone or whatever. That is also increasing your super balance. And it is another strategy with getting more money into super. So as you know, we've discussed, so you can put maximum of 25000 as concessional contributions into your super. But if your business is renting from the super fund as well, that can be another way to get essentially more funds into your super to really utilise that lower tax rate and also provision for your retirement. And it also gives you the asset protection as well. So if something happens outside of the super, essentially, let's just say the business does fold for whatever reason, the business doesn't actually own the property. So it's just leasing the property off of the super fund. So the property should be relatively safe in my understanding of it. Correct me if I'm wrong on that one. That's right. It's completely protected from any bankruptcy provisions. So the liquidators can't go after the property because it belongs to the self-managed super fund. Yeah, which is great. One of the downfalls, not the right word, but considerations with it, which we've spoke off of the podcast about previously, which we'll go into a little bit now, is when a member dies, if a substantial amount of the asset portfolio is in the commercial property, which the reality is it probably will be. It may even be the only asset of the self-managed super fund. What's the implications if somebody dies? Well, if you die and they're in accumulation phase, 
that benefit has to be paid out. Can't stay in superannuation regardless of where the superannuation is. Then it's a question of how do we pay this money out because we've got this immovable asset. So do we sell the asset? Do we bring in another member who makes a contribution? Do the remaining surviving members make large contributions? It is the big problem with having one massive asset being basically the whole of the entire self-managed super fund. It is a risk. Thankfully, I haven't seen people come undone in that situation, but they need to be aware that it can happen. Yeah, it is an important consideration as well. And I mean, personally, I haven't seen it either, but you know, it is something that you do have to be aware of if something does happen, somebody dies, or another avenue, I suppose, which I did have a client with this, they went in with a third party and bought a commercial property that their joint business operated out of. And the third party and themselves had a falling out and they wanted to withdraw to roll over into their own self-managed super fund themselves, which we'll go through in a sec. But that caused all sorts of issues in the respect that they didn't actually have any real cash or anything. It was purely the commercial property was the whole asset of the self-managed super fund. So in that sort of situation, even hypothetically, because obviously we haven't gone through the client's intricate side of things, but what, what do you reckon would be the normal sort of course of action or the best course of action in that respect? The big problem with those sorts of situations, and it's the same with divorce, is people aren't amicable. It becomes a fight. Everything becomes a fight. And everybody has a different perspective on the situation. And as soon as we take the common sense, rational approach out of it, it's just hard, hard work for everybody and emotion takes over. So us as accountants need to be able to, one, not be emotional about it and try and get our clients back to being unemotional about it and being practical about it. Because the simple fact is, Someone's got to end up owning the property. Who's best positioned to own that property and utilise it for their best purposes? If in reality you don't really want the property, why are you arguing over it? Find out what it's worth, find out the best approach to cash it up and play fair with each other because you're all just going to get on with your lives afterwards. Exactly. And if you don't, you're just going to spend all the money paying lawyers. That's right. And accountants. (laughs) But yeah, if you can sit down like two adults and divvy it up, work out the best strategy, like you said, Darren, it's definitely the cheaper and better option. And that, to be honest, just goes with everything. If you're divorcing and the business assets and personal assets, if you sit down and work it out together, you know, you're not spending insane amount of money on accountants and lawyers and court costs and all of that side of things. And not even just the actual monetary cost, the emotional stress that that causes is a huge issue. So that's an important one. Is there, and I'm not sure on this, is there a, a, I suppose, a document or anything where everybody's amicable, you're going into the self-managed super fund, sort of lay out how you would want it to happen, similar to like a shareholders agreement, or is that not a thing with self-managed? Well, I mean, if we have to sell this property to one of the parties that's involved, then where you can get lawyers to draw up deferred settlement contracts and things like that, put in place all sorts of different agreements that can be put on the table to say, well, 
this is how this is going to work, this is what the parties agree to, and then give it a time period. The issue becomes when everybody wants everything straight away. That's just not the reality of it. When you made the investment at the start, you know you're not going to be able to snap your fingers and sell that asset. doesn't yep. matter what your personal situations are. That's an immovable asset. You've got to be rational about it and say, okay, well, this is going to take a bit of time to sort out rather than beat each other up about it. Let's put in place an agreement that protects by all parties and follow the agreement. There are plenty of different ways to style it. A lawyer would have to do it. It's the only way it's going to work. Yep, I agree. And especially like we just said, trying to take the emotion out of it is so important. Obviously, you know, you're in the heat of it. It is hard to do that. It's hard to step away. And depending on why it's happened, somebody died, will obviously be different emotions too. You get divorced versus business partner falling out. But ultimately, if you keep a cool head and you work it all out together, it will get sorted. It has to get sorted. That has to happen. It will be the better avenue to go down to make that happen. If you're in a situation where you have a self-managed super fund with residential or commercial property, basically an asset that takes up the entire superannuation fund, put in place an agreement now, something in writing, even if it's not a registered agreement, just something that you both sign to say, look, when this happens, we understand that this is a tough situation. We need to allow each other the surviving people time to deal with this asset. And if you do that when everybody's everybody's alive and it's all good, everybody's a lot better and more agreeing to it. Whereas if you do it once shit hits the fan, it's hard work. It's no different than a shareholder agreement in a sense that we're just preparing for something that may never happen. And we're saying, well, okay, if this happens, then this is what we expect to happen. You know, if someone dies, we expect this to happen. It may be that various arrangements can be put in place. It really depends on the particular estate planning issues that you have. And on that one as well with, for example, the death, for every listener and everybody out there, it is 100% certain that you will die eventually. So it will come up at some point, whether you are in a self-managed super fund or all the different things. But it is something you do have to consider because... You know, we never know when we're going to die, but guaranteed it's going to happen at some point. So you've got to look at these things as well. And it's really important from an estate planning, like Darren just said, what happens to the money when you do die? And let's go on the assumption that it has been paid out and all the rest. Where does that money go? What happens with it? These are all big questions that you need to think of and then write up in your will or whatever's going on. And they'll make everybody's life easier. On that day, when you are gone, it'll just make everybody's life easier if you've said, this is how I want it to go. People need to bear in mind is that superannuation doesn't automatically default to the estate. The remaining trustees have control. So there are ways of dealing with that. There are also little tricks we can put in place because if you pass away and you don't have a partner, say you're the surviving member of the partner, once that estate then gets paid to the kids, the kids are going to pay some tax. Now, if you know you're unwell, start to pay the kids out before you pass away. Because if you're over 60 and you're in retirement phase and you're paying the kids before you pass away, it doesn't cost them any tax. So just on that one, just for the listener's purpose, before we said accumulation phase and then we've just said the retirement phase, what's the difference and what 
I suppose, from a practical point of view, happens between the two. Okay. So with superannuation, there are a couple of things that we probably should cover off. First of all, superannuation pays a flat 15% tax rate. That's on income earned by those in accumulation phase. By accumulation phase, we essentially mean you're accumulating for your retirement. Once you retire, you then convert that to an income stream, which we generally refer to as a pension, and you start to draw down your superannuation. When you're in retirement phase, the tax rate is zero. And if you're over 60, you don't pay tax on the money you take from superannuation. And is that unlimited or to a limit? There's a minimum that you have to take, but there's no maximum. This is current law. May change in the future at some point, but under current law, there's no maximum. You should withdraw the whole lot tax free once you're over 60, provided you retire. Okay. On the retirement side of things, get in the weeds a little bit, but what's the definition of retired for super fund? Semi retired, have gone a month without going back to work, or is there any hard and fast rules? Well, with retirement, there are generally three triggers for retirement. One is obtaining age pension age, which we commonly think of as 65. It'll increase over time. Eventually, it'll get to 67. So, Mitch, you're going to be working until you're 67 as far as... If I'm lucky, it's probably going to be 80 by the time I get there, but yeah. (laughs) But you can retire before that. If you cease employment after 60, you're deemed retired from a superannuation perspective. That doesn't mean to say you get a government pension but it means you can access your super. If you're between 55 and 60, you can access your super provided you have ceased employment and you're willing to say, I'm never going back to work again. Problem is when you're under 60 and you start to draw down money, you're going to pay tax on it. The money you draw down from super, you're not paying any tax on it. So there's a big change. 60 is the key number. Once you hit 60, a lot of things on the table that we can do say to people, once you get to 45, start really seriously thinking about your superannuation because you've only got now 15 years before potentially you can start accessing it. 15 years isn't a long time to really build up a substantial nest egg. Yeah, no, definitely. So with that as well, you said not going back to work, so retiring, not going back to work. What happens if you do? So you retire, you go, yep, I'm intending to retire. Two years later, you get bored, you're at home, whatever, and you decide to go back to work. What happens then? The point will be that on the day you sign that document saying, I have retired or I've ceased employment and I have no intention of going back to work. At that point in time, you've met what we call a condition of release and your benefit becomes unrestricted, non-preserved. Can't then go back. So if you return to work, Say someone makes you an amazing offer and says, hey, come work for me and you think it's going to be fun. It doesn't then revert back to being preserved and you can't touch it again. Once it's met the condition of release, it remains available to you. And if on the assumption you're over 60, it remains tax-free? Correct. Okay. That's interesting because for many of our listeners, they may be looking at retiring or have retired and maybe want to go do one day, two days a week here, there in the future. So it's good to know that if they do retire and they've got full intent to not work, but you know, at some point later, it just happens to happen, they're not going to get penalized for that. 
No, that's exactly right. Well, they may change careers. You get us accountants, we've been hard done by all our lives, we've worked hard, and we suddenly wake up and go, well, I want to go start landscaping or something. Who knows? You may completely change the careers. And if yes. you're 60 and you cease employment as an accountant and two weeks later start a job as an architect, then you've retired. So technically you can start to access your superannuation. Well, I don't know why you would if you're continuing to work full time. No, but it's good to know that it's not like you're going to have to repay it or any yeah. other issues that could occur from that situation. The difficulty becomes when you're self-employed because it's hard to prove that you ceased employment. Yes. You're working for yourself. Consult a professional. That's all I can say with that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's on a very case-by-case basis, depending on structures as well. Some are probably easier to prove that it ceased than others. But yeah, definitely. If you're employed, pretty easy to prove whether you were or weren't. But yeah, self-employed, that can get a little bit grey and a little bit interesting. Definitely seek professional advice in that respect. Now, interesting one for you. What horror stories have you come across over your career? Oh, anything and everything. The biggest problem with self-managed super funds is that people, they think it's their money and they can do what they like with it now. I've seen people pay for their milk and their grocery shopping from their superannuation week in, week out for the entire year. It's not just a mistake. They've, they've gone and done it. Are you saying that's not providing for your retirement essentials? No, that's not the purpose of superannuation. It certainly isn't the purpose of self-managed super funds. So I've seen people do that. The most common problems you have is where people take money from a super fund for their own purposes, whether that be because they want a car or they found some investment that they think is going to be the bee's knees and the next thing you know, it goes pear-shaped. They've lost all the money, but it wasn't their money to begin with. It was the superannuation funds. And now they've got even more headaches than they had before. So on that one, like you said, that was going and buying milk and possibly bought a car or whatever, what would happen in that situation from the listener point of view? You know, these guys are managing their own super fund. What's the fallout? What's the penalties and what has to happen to fix that? Well, it really depends on why they did it. You're going to be subject to ATO interpretation of what the situation is. Mm-hmm. And if you're the ACO and they're taking a cynical view, they're going, well, you did this intentionally, then you can be fined $12,000. So it's going to cost you a lot more money, potentially jail. Worst case scenario is that the fund gets deemed non-compliant and then half of whatever's left in the self-managed super fund is taken by the ATO. That would hurt. You wouldn't want to have your commercial property in there and break the law, put it that way. No, definitely not. Just on that before we get back to it. So non-complying, where's the line to go from a complying fund to a non-complying fund and losing half of your retirement? People like these things to be hard and fast and there's the line and if you step over it, it doesn't work that way. It really is an assessment. Each self-managed super fund is audited each year by someone completely independent and there and they'll say, well, you took that money out, that's a breach to the law, and they'll report it to the ATO, and then the ATO will do their own assessment of the situation. If it's $10,000 of a million-dollar fund, it's not a bigger drama as opposed to $10,000 of a $50,000 fund. So it's all a perspective type of thing, and it's also intention. Sometimes mistakes happen, and the ATO will know that. 
they'll still tell you off and they'll still fine you, but they may not deem the fund non-compliant. The best thing you can do is take steps to rectify the situation. So if you took $10,000 out, put in place a plan to pay it back with interest. Mm-hmm. Then the ATO goes, okay, you've done the wrong thing, but I can see you're trying to rectify it. And they'll, they'll be kinder to you. That's the best advice I would give. Basically, we just have to work with the ATO to try and keep you out of trouble as much as we can. And I mean, hopefully to all the listeners and stuff, you don't end up in that situation and you don't do naughty things and take money and all the rest, but it is good to know how it all works. Like Darren did say, you'll still get in trouble for it, but if the ATO can see that you're trying to fix the problem, they're definitely a lot more understanding of it. Yeah. I mean, this is not new to them. No, exactly. The law has been around for a while, pretty much everything that can have been done, would have been done. They've seen it all before. The other thing I would suggest is that you go to people like us two and you say, this is what's happened and we do our best to sort it out. And when these things happen, be upfront about it. Don't try and dig yourself a bigger hole because the ATO will find you. They will come down hard on you and they will not be lied about. 100%. And it's coming out. The accounts, everything has to be audited. You need substantiation for everything. So if suddenly 50 grand was withdrawn, it's pretty obvious that something's happened there. So be upfront, honest, and then we try and fix the problem. I have also found, and it'd be interesting in your experience with this, but if somebody has done the wrong thing, they're upfront, honest about it. We set a plan in place and then they go to the ATO and essentially go, look, I made a mistake. This is my plan. This is what I've done. They've disclosed themselves to the ATO. The ATO is a lot more lenient rather than them finding it and you're trying to hide it from them. Most definitely. We would always encourage you being up front rather than them finding you. Um, yeah, exactly. Because, yeah, you'll still get in trouble, but you won't get in as big a trouble potentially as if you were hiding it and all the other side of things. Now, one thing which you're not allowed to do, but I have heard of people doing it, and I would be interested from a specialist and legal-ish point of view, I suppose. So people that are leaving the country, and I'm sure this has come across your desk before, they want to take their super and they don't want to roll it into another fund in another country. For example, the Australian super going into a Kiwi saver or something of the like. There's all these schemes which are schemes and the ATO are not happy about it and you will be in the shit for it, that they set up self-managed super funds, withdraw the money and then leave the country. Obviously, that's illegal. You're not allowed to do it. But what's the fallout? What happens? Are they never allowed back in the country again? Is it fraud? What happens in that situation? It's definitely fraud. You would return to the country because you would be arrested and charged with fraud. You'd either end up in jail or you'd have one hell of a fine. I don't know that they'd chase you around the globe, but put it this way, I avoid that sort of scenario as much as I possibly can because I don't want to be involved in it. It'll cost me my self-managed super fund advisor's licence. might cost me my tax agent licence. It puts my colleagues at risk. If you want to do that, don't come anywhere near me. I'm not interested in that sort of stuff. Yeah, I 100% agree. And when I have heard stories 
not from my clients or I've been involved in anything like that, but, you know, around the water cooler talk at when they're on site or whatever, and they've said that this is what their mate did. And I'm just gobsmacked. I'm like, no, you can't do that. That breaches so many laws and so much shit and don't come anywhere near me. I don't want anything to do with it. It's your problem. Go away. But yes, I have heard of people doing that sort of thing. Or there was a time, I'm sure it still happens around the place, that certain accountants, dodgy accountants, not us, they would set up self-managed super funds and advise their clients that this is how you access your super early. And so they'd set it up, withdraw it. The client themselves should have known, but may or may not have known that they are contravening the law and they're doing all this shit wrong withdrawn the super, gone and done whatever they've done with it and then have been pinged at a later date. I have heard of schemes like that and, again, just don't want to do it. Effectively, for all the listeners, you cannot get your super out if you're under 55 at minimum. There is a couple of ways you can, which we'll go into in a second, but for the most part, assume you can't touch it. It is for your retirement and... I tell you what, if you're going to pull it out now, you're going to regret it when you hit retirement because it's not there. That's just my opinion on that one. People need to keep a focus on a couple of things. One is 15% tax rate whilst it's in super. Why would you take it out? It's too dangerous and you're costing yourself your such a tax-effective vehicle down the track for whatever you want now. The other thing is there's a thing called a sole purpose test which says that as a trustee, you must operate this entity, i.e. the superannuation fund, for the purpose of your retirement. If you're setting up a self-managed super fund for the sole purpose of taking the money out, then you are breaking the law. That's not the purpose. You're not following the sole purpose test. And that is the cornerstone of superannuation. It's why I take issue with an industry fund that advertises that they're saying, we're going to give you 200,000 jobs. Well, A, in what industry? So... There's construction benefit, but accountants don't. Yeah. But the other thing is, it's not the purpose of superannuation. It's not the role of superannuation to provide 200,000 jobs. That happens. That's great. But that's not its purpose. Its purpose is to make investments for the benefit of your financial future. Yeah. And on that same one, when you said the 200,000 jobs, if as a consequence of the investment that happens, sweet, that's great. That's, you know, simulating economy, et cetera. But purely for employing that many people, if that's to the detriment of your retirement, why would you do that? Why would anybody do it like that? Let's say this investment that's going to employ all these people is purely to build a shopping centre. If you look at the way the world is working at the moment, shopping centres are getting less and less. The value is retreating because we're more online, we're more at home, and we want more leisure time. We don't want to spend our time, unless you like shopping, don't want to spend more and more time walking around the same shops you see in every shopping centre. So it may give you 200,000 jobs to build the thing, but in the end, how are you going to sell that asset? Who's going to buy it? It's yeah. a shopping centre. So how much is this asset going to be worth 10 years in the future when I'm ready to retire, or 40 years in the future when Mitch is ready to retire? doesn't stack up as an intelligent investment that builds for your retirement. Yeah, exactly. And that's literally, like you said, that's the entire point of superannuation is for your retirement. Politics and all the other shit should be aside. The entire point 
is for you to have money when you retire. So when they're doing things like that, I'm not a big fan of that in and of itself because it hasn't got the right purpose behind it. If as a consequence of intelligent investing that happens, that many people get the jobs and stuff, as I said, sweet, great, you know, stimulates the economy, all the rest. But if you're doing it purely for that reason, it does beg the question of are they really looking out for your best interests in retirement? That's right. Or are they looking out for the interests of their union construction workers or whoever needs jobs at that point in time? I always use the example of the electricity in Adelaide because superannuation at least part owns that. Who are you going to sell on an electricity grid to? Yeah, exactly. Nobody's buying it. No one's going to buy it. Except for China, maybe. Yeah, true. But yeah, nobody's going to buy that. It's a very small pool of places that would. And it would also be a hard one, even if you could and you could get rid of it, it's not a very liquid asset. It's not an easy one just to get rid of because you need the cash. That's right. You need a Facebook founder or a billionaire that's got money to burn to buy something like that. Exactly. If there's any of those that are missing, I'm sure there's an accounting firm right here that would be happy to take it. I'll sell you my accounting firm for billions of dollars. So I suppose on superannuation, what do you see in the next 10 years, if any big changes or, you know, this is crystal ball stuff, so we're not going to hold you to it, but anything you would like to see changed as well? There are always things I'd like to see changed, but they're mainly very selfish things. We've got a population of 25 million, 16% of them over 65. What we're saying is that this government is going to be able to provide an age pension for 4 million people, something like that. Yeah, roughly. Uh, We'll call it 4 million. That relies on people that are working and pay the taxes to pay for that retirement. At some point, that 16% is going to grow to 20% of which I hopefully will be one of them. So I'm looking forward to Mitch paying for my retirement. He's going to pay for my age pension. So we've got to ask ourselves one question. Is any government going to be able to afford to pay for all these people in retirement? If your answer to that is no, they can't, then you need a healthy superannuation balance, one that you can effectively manage. When we talk about self-managed super fund, we like it because it gives control, but it also gives you an education and superannuation. So you learn what a concessional contribution is and you learn what the cap is and you learn how tax-effective that can be. You learn what a pension account is. You learn that it pays 15% tax when it's in accumulation phase and 0% when it's in pension phase. You learn all these tricks to really build and empower your superannuation. What I'd like to see is I'd like to see more education on these things with regard to superannuation for the FIFO workers and the nurses and all these people that are just sort of plodding along. And yes, their superannuation is slowly building up, but it could be superpowered if they knew how to utilise it. With regard to self-managed super funds, I'd like to see governments stop trying to tell us what to do. If you want to invest in the Perth Mint, Invest in the Perth Mint. If you want to invest in cryptocurrency, invest in cryptocurrency. But take sage advice. It doesn't have to be expensive, just sensible, common sense advice. Let someone sit next to you and say, why are you doing this? Is this because you like to gamble? Or is this because 
you think is a really good investment and how does that work? Rather than saying, no, you can't do that, we don't like it when you do that, or when ASIC comes out and says it costs $13,000 a year to run a self-managed super fund, which is complete and utter falsehood. I was going to say, we're going to have to up our fees if that's how much it costs. I should be retired to Caribbean somewhere by now. So I've been looking after self-managed super funds for 25 years. Yeah, you should should be be sitting pretty. That's right. (laughs) But these are the things that the government comes out with because it doesn't understand the nuances and it doesn't educate its people. I really believe that it would be such a great thing to educate people on superannuation in general so that they know how to utilise it best way possible. I don't like this increase in the superannuation guarantee. This is my personal view because it puts pressure on small business, even more money on behalf of their employees, when in fact your employee, if they want to, can max out their concessional contributions at any time they like. They need the education on it. They need to understand they can already do these things. That way it remains flexible. As soon as you regiment it, it becomes even harder. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, it squeezes the small business in the way that the employee is not going to take a pay cut. So they're not going to absorb the increase in the required contribution. So the employer is going to have to kick that in. It's not going to be a massive increase, but still, you know, across quite a few employees, that's still a big factor. And it's something that we'll go into it. And it may be a case of because of the increase and you've got so many staff, et cetera, that that increase means that it would have covered one person's wage or a part-time wage or something of the like. And because we're now required to pay it by law, that increase, that job's non-existent. So I think there'll be some of that. And it also pushes towards a outsourcing sort of economy. I've thought this for a while from just a normal employment side of things, not just super, but the more regulated and the more work and expense it is for employees, the more people are going to find cheaper, easier options to do it. It may be the same, it may be better, it may be worse, but the reality is many companies that, for example, could have somebody here being a receptionist due to all the requirements and the cost involved in it have gone elsewhere. They've gone over to the Philippines or something where it's half the price, if not less. We all know big companies that have done it and we just kind of accept it. You know, Telstra, you call Telstra, it's never a person here that's answering the phone and dealing with it and not necessarily a bad thing or whatever. But the reality is they've done that because that's the cheaper, better option for them to do than to have the call centers here. And that is based off of a lot of it, the legislation and that side of things. Now, if there wasn't, would they still go overseas? Look, maybe, because to be honest, it's going to be cheaper over there anyway. Labor in the Philippines or wherever is cheaper than Australia. But it incentivizes businesses to do that, that would have been teetering, you know, should we, should we, we'll be able to keep a strong Australian base. If suddenly the regulations go up, you're having to pay more in super, you're having a whatever, you know, that's that extra little nail in the coffin that's like, maybe I'll just get somebody overseas to do it and then I don't have to worry about any of this shit. Sorry, that was my little rant on that one, but that's essentially what would happen. My thoughts on that is 
overseas outsourcing only really works and is a benefit to our economy when the economy is at full employment already. So if everybody in Australia has jobs and you can't get the quality of service you need because there's no one available for you to employ locally, then you go overseas. If you want a strong, effective, functioning economy in Australia, you need to employ people in Australia. It doesn't mean to say you can't outsource, you just have to outsource locally. Stan tells for doing it. But that was just the first one that came to my head on that because we've all dealt with that issue calling Telstra and it's they're not here. That is an issue. And it's not like there's a shortage of people here, even at the moment, that are looking for work. Essentially, it's too expensive and too much red tape. I would still advise people it's definitely worthwhile investing in our own backyard. It helps everybody and all the rest and really think about it if you are looking at offshoring. But I can understand with certain industries and certain jobs, why people do. So can I. And I mean, it's one of these things, it's not new. It's been around since the internet, well before that even. But you can't sit there and say, oh, woe is me and things are so expensive and all this sort of stuff. When the only way you get prices down is to have everybody at full employment. Yes. Because then everybody's got disposable income. Otherwise, we're all fighting for the scraps. More competition in the market, there's more demand. We're sending money out of the economy rather than bringing money into the economy. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is because essentially you're putting money into whatever foreign country's economy that you're engaging. And as I said, I can understand it. It can work depending on situation, but it is a factor that people need to consider as well if they're looking down that path. And then even from a interesting point of view, I was actually talking to a accountant who is a director of a very large accounting firm. And they had an office in India where they employed a few hundred accountants and did all the work. So their Australian company would send it to India, get it done there, comes back. They've actually, because of their systems and artificial intelligence, it is now cheaper for them to use their systems and the AI here than it is to get the firm in India that they run and own to do the work. So I just thought that was an interesting evolution, I suppose, from it's too expensive here, we're going to set it up overseas. They set it up, they got a few hundred accounts, they're a very large firm, to technologies adapted so much, we can bring it back and it's more efficient and cost effective than it was to outsource it. One of the exercises that we've been thinking about in the last three months because of lockdowns and things like that is we've proven that we can work from home and that takes a lot of pressure out. You don't necessarily need the big office. You don't necessarily need all this space and providing facilities for staff. You need a kitchen, you need toilets, you need all this sort of stuff. You've got to service them, you've got to clean them. If you can set someone up with a computer and a printer and a scanner at home, and they can work from home, provided you have performance indicators to make sure they're doing their job, there's no reason certain industries can't adapt to having staff sitting at home or outsourcing to a specialist. So for you as an accountant, outsourcing to me, the specialist in self-managed super funds, because we're on the same team, but we don't need to be sitting right next to each other to do it. I think that the concept of an office is probably going to start to die yeah. over the next 
20 to 30 years. Because I agree, the amount as well that people pay rent, cleaning, like you were saying, for a business to not have to or have an office but it's a lot smaller than they would have otherwise, there's going to be many businesses that are looking at that going, well, we're proved. Like you said, people work from home and it's been as efficient, if not more efficient. Even arguably, say, for example, a business wasn't quite as efficient and it works out that due to inefficiencies from working from home, it costs them $100,000 a year. But their rent on the property is a million dollars and they could make it smaller, downsize, and it'll cost them 400000 a year. It's still beneficial to take that 100 grand cost, pay the 400, and you're still saving half a mil. So I think it's interesting that adapting to these very things because that's on the assumption that it has dropped their productivity. But in many cases, I've found people are being more productive. We're distracting each other less. I mean, yeah. accountants notoriously don't like to talk to other people. We're very insular. We like our own little world that we live in. So when nobody's bothering us, we get a hell of a lot done. Yeah, exactly. It's shown many things like that or you know, people not having to, say, commute to Perth, for example, from Mandra where we are, which is an hour or so commute each way. So that's two hours a day that they either don't have to commute or I have known people to work that period as well. So the employer is suddenly getting two hours extra a day. That's 10 hours a week out of them, which is amazing and awesome. The other thing is lifestyle as well. Yeah, so exactly. You're down tools, you finish for the day, you turn the TV on and you wish it and watch the news or something. I mean, you're immediately at home. Yeah, and you get to <laughs> balance it. You know, you say you need to go pick up the kids or something at three o'clock. Yeah, you might be able to go, okay, I'll do that and then I'm going to work till six or something. It just allows that flexibility. And I think that work-life balance is a huge thing. And we've now proved it because of COVID that people can work from home and can be trusted. That's exactly right. We're getting to the hour mark soon. So any other major things you want to touch on for self-managed super fund side of things? One, I would always encourage people to understand the fees that they pay. When you look at Australian super, for example, they charge you a dollar fifty a week as an administration fee, and they advertise, oh, this is a low fee. What they don't tell you is that they also charge you an investment fee, which is 0.6% of your balance. Yeah. Plus, they charge you a margin fee and call-in advice fee and a spread fee and all these other little add-ons that you're getting charged. So if you and your partner and your superannuation together adds up to more than two hundred and fifty to $300,000, chances are a self-managed super fund is going to be either cheaper or the same. And as the value goes up, self-managed super fund is free stay predominantly about the same. Whereas the industry funds, the fee gets higher because it's a percentage of the value of what you have invested with them, which is why they want the superannuation guarantee to go up because then you're putting more money in super and they can charge higher fees. So do an assessment. Also do an assessment of what insurance you have. Life insurance is very important, but make sure you're not being overcharged make sure that it hasn't got out of control and make sure you understand what the policy is because I've seen too many arguments over trying to get 
your life insurance paid out when someone has passed away. It's not fun. And it's happening at a time when you just don't want to be having these problems. So my biggest advice to anybody is be conscious of yourself, man, superannuation. You don't have to let it consume you, of course, but understand what it is, understand how it works, understand what your fees are, and just keep it in your mind. And I'm a big believer in superannuation. I'm a big believer in making sure you have sufficient. That doesn't mean to say you have to get to a million dollars. Mm. But you have to get to a point where it will work for you in your retirement. Otherwise, there's going to be some nasty surprises down the track because I don't believe any government, and we've seen it in other countries, particularly in Europe, where they simply cannot afford to pay the sheer number of retired people they have. Yeah, exactly. And that just doesn't lead to anything good in that situation. Either the taxes go up, which our taxes are huge anyway, so don't have that much room there or the money's got to come from somewhere. Otherwise, they're bankrupt themselves. I think it was Greece or Italy or somewhere. They were having rights because basically the social security service fell over. The government was just paying money out to everybody and living off its credit card. At some point, it cannot do that. At some point, the bill comes due and you've got to pay it somehow. And as soon as people start, their lifestyle is taken away from them, then all hell breaks loose. And the only way you can look after yourself is to take control and look yeah. after your own superannuation and make sure you nurture it. And then it's there for you when you need it. Yeah, exactly. And then at least you're protected. You've done what you need to do or what's within your power to provision for your retirement or for whatever, like in this situation, at least super for your retirement. But even you know, making sure that you've got cash reserves just to get bank for if something happens or those sorts of things, you've got to cover your bases. That's right. Also think about how superannuation interplays with your estate planning. You're required to complete a nomination form as to what happens to your super when you pass away. Most people would just put their partner and then the kids. Well, once this superannuation benefit gets to a sizable amount, you really need to think a lot more about that because there are tricks and ways in which you can do that will minimise tax, but there are also common sense things that we need to think about. Which child gets what? Do they all get a share from the super or does one get something from the super? And make sure that it works in unison with your estate planning issues. Do you need a testamentary trust? Do you have a blended family? Are there going to be people fighting for this money? That's the other thing which is very important to consider from a blended family point of view is if you, for argument's sake, excluded a couple of the children or whatever, whether it's yours or step or however it worked, you know, is there going to be people contesting the will? Is there going to be people fighting for everything? Reviewing that death benefit nomination as well, you know, you might have done it and it was all well and good 20 years ago and then you've been divorced and your kids don't talk to you and who knows what else by that point. So it is important to stay on top of these things as well, just to make sure that your bases are covered. And when you do die, it's as easy as possible for everybody and the most tax-effective way. It's another reason why I like self-managed super funds. I mean, I'm kind of biased, but I like self-managed super funds because they put these things right in front of you. With us, we give our clients each year a form that says, do you need assistance with estate planning? Because we want them to think about each and every year. Nothing may happen that year, but 
the next year something may have happened and I might think, well, okay, I need to review this situation and they can talk to us about it. Yeah, exactly, Uh, exactly. And it's so important because like we said at the start, there is a 100% chance that you will die eventually. Whether it's today, tomorrow, 50 years, it will happen. And Australian Super is not going to do that. They're not going to knock on your door and say, have you thought about this? Have you considered that? Do you understand how this works? They don't care about that sort of stuff. As far as they're concerned, that's your problem. You have to figure all that out. And by the time you realise you should have thought about it, it's too late. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, just to close up, I've got a couple of, well, five really quick questions for you. This one's slightly different, but you are in business, so you can answer it as well. What do you think is the most important quality in business? Integrity. Beautiful. It's interesting, and I've said it on previous podcasts, but almost everybody has said that or a version of it, which I 100% agree with. Being accountants, we've had it hammered into us since university that your professional ethics are paramount. I don't like the idea of doing my job and doing it in a way that's sort of slimy. Not only is that hard for yourself and you're going to be able to sleep at night, but even if for whatever reason that didn't matter to you, Western Australia is a small place. It gets around pretty quick. If you're doing slimy deals and saying one thing, doing another, it's just not good for anybody. But yeah, within yourself, you've got to be able to sleep at night as well. So I think integrity and honesty and all of that. And if you say you're going to do something, you do it. That's a massive thing as well. Yeah, I agree with that. And I like going to bed being proud of something. Just to give you a quick example, we were talking about cryptocurrency. I had a client that wanted to go into cryptocurrency. And I said to them, okay, but you put the equivalent amount in gold. And they made a lot of money out of that crypto, but then they lost it. So they cashed up and they didn't lose money. They lost their profit, essentially. Yep. And at the same time, they went into gold with the equivalent amount of money. And right now, that gold has made the same amount of profit and it ain't going anywhere. Yeah. And it's a safe, long-term, easy investment. Like I couldn't be happy for them and I'm very, very pleased that I steered them in a good direction. Didn't stifle them from what they wanted to do, but steered them in a good direction. Yeah, I agree. And that you can sleep at night. You know that as the specialist, you've advised and you've really helped them. Now, next one. If you had one superpower, what would it be? With the beard I've got at the moment, I probably want to be a Wolverine type, but I'd probably say to fly. I always yeah. look up and think, I'd love to be that bird right now, just cruising along. Nice, nice. Now, if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be? Don't be afraid to back yourself. I'm only allowed to give one, right? You can give more than one if you want. Just back yourself. You're smart. you got no reason to doubt yourself. Back yourself in. Now, what is your favourite footy tape? And I know you're a uh, soccer fan, but we'll go AFL no, and soccer. Well, Liverpool rules. I mean, that's just my lifeblood. That's religion to me. <laughs> Second is West Coast Eagles. What's your favourite book of all time? Oh, favourite book of all time. Now, that's a really tough question. I should have thought about that a lot more. Favourite book of all time, probably I'd have to say it'd be an Agatha Christie book and then there were none because mm-hmm. I never figured it out. It's a murder mystery and I never figured it out. Even when I reread it sometimes, I think I've missed something here. I know I've missed something. I have to go back and read it again. I must have read that book five times and still I'm hunting around for clues that I reckon I've missed. Okay. It's keeping you engaged and keeping you wanting more, so that's really good. Well, thank you very much, Darren. I think my listeners are going to get a lot out of this. 
And if they do have any questions or want to reach out, what would be the best way they could do that? I just call through your office. No worries. So we'll put our details below in the show notes. So if anybody wants to talk more about self-managed super funds or anything in general regarding super funds, please feel free to drop us a line and we can arrange a meeting with Darren. Thank you very much and stay tuned, everybody, for the next podcast. You've been listening to The Mitch Maroney Show. Mitch Maroney Show. Stay tuned for more.